In today's episode, I propose how rice cakes can double as packing material, and we discuss the rights of raccoons. Also, we take a cursory look at progressive Christianity and how it is rapidly eroding many previously evangelical and Bible-believing churches. We will discuss this and much more on today's episode of Talks with Josh. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of Talks with Josh. Looking forward to getting into today's episode together. If you're a first-time listener, I want to encourage you to subscribe. That way you don't miss out on any content or any episodes as they come out. Also, too, there's a link in the show notes to leave a voicemail where you can ask questions, you can suggest topics or any other things that are on your mind. And uh, I can play that on a future episode, and that just helps me interact with you guys a bit more. And it also gives me ideas of topics and concepts maybe I haven't uh, thought about or haven't been on my radar before. Also as well, there's a link in the show notes to becoming a monthly partner. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month, and that just helps me out, helps me cover the cost of producing the show. All right, with that out of the way just like we've done with every single episode thus far. We're going to be talking about food. And uh, today on today's episode, I want to talk about rice cakes. Rice cakes were really popular back in the 80s and 90s. They kind of just hit the scene. They're making a comeback again with all the gluten-free options. But uh, I remember these discs, (laughs) that uh, that came out that people were just going crazy over. And uh, I just never understood it. Uh, I, I mentioned in a previous episode about celery, how my, how my mom would slather peanut butter on celery to try to get me to eat it. And she would do the same thing with these, with these rice cakes. Now in Asia, in that part of the, in that part of the world, Rice is a huge staple. I mean, it's just a, it is in every, pretty much every type of food you can imagine. Um, And so there's a lot of variations of what they even call them rice cakes, which I'm sure are way better than these things. And uh, I remember watching a Bill Cosby show. Remember, you guys remember that, that show, the Cosby show? And, uh, I remember the the episode where where Claire Huxtable is trying to get Cliff to eat a rice cake, and uh, basically the whole context of the show is she's trying to get him to eat healthier because he went to the doctor and or a friend of his and had a heart attack or something, and and so he's hardly eating anything all day, and uh, I think they're they're lying in bed, and she pulls out the rice cakes, he takes a bite and chews for a while. And uh, while, he, while he's uh, chewing, she's uh, declaring all of the benefits of these rice cakes. She goes, uh, they're, you know, there's zero calories, zero fat, zero sugar. And he's, he's chewing with this miserable look on his face. And he goes, zero taste. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, just, I never 
I mean, these things can double as packing material. You know, I might as well just save them. And if you got to ship something back to Amazon, just throw them in there. I mean, they, they taste about the same. They're about as the same density. And uh, I, I'm like, okay. And so they're, they're declaring all of these health benefits of rice cakes. I go, okay. They're all shaped the same. The density of these is, is ridiculous. What other things are you putting in here that help hold this whole thing together? Because it's clearly not just rice. There's got to be some other stuff going on here that's questionable. So rice cakes. And, and uh, yeah, those for those of you that are younger in the audience, um, the huge thing in the 80s and 90s, um, especially late 80s and that kind of thing. I was born in 83, so really my childhood, from what I really remember, it was the 90s, and they were still really big back then. And uh, my mom ate them. I, I, I just... I don't get it. So yeah, rice cakes, not doing it, won't touch them, zero taste. All right, let's jump into our first topic of our trifecta of topics. We're going to be talking about a story that happened here in Sarasota, and it has to do with a raccoon named Rosie. So I'm just going to read the article first, and then we're going to discuss it. The Suncoast community has rallied together to show their gratitude to the Sarasota County's Sheriff's Office after the woman who recorded herself burning a raccoon alive was arrested. Justice for Rosie the Raccoon is the name of the event that took place outside the state attorney's office, 12th Judicial Circuit, on September 3rd. It goes on to say the group gathered outside the courtroom to give a voice to animals like Rosie and they're investigating the father and daughter, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let me just say this up front. This is a sensitive topic because I know many, many, many people that love animals and have pets and all these different things. And so let me just say right up front that there's no excuse here to burn a raccoon alive. That's, that's, a, that's a really awful thing to do. And so there's no excuse for that. I'm not uh, making any kind of uh, cop out for them. However, I want to discuss an issue here that's directly linked to this. Uh, There's a picture here and there's signs that say animals have rights to speak up for the voiceless, uh, justice for Rosie the raccoon, different things like that. And I want to talk about this issue of animal rights and kind of break this down because I think it's just an issue where there's a lot of confusion or there's a lot of just wrong ways of thinking and making animals out to be way more than God intended them to be. So if we go back to Genesis, man's created in the image of God. Okay, and contains body, soul, and spirit. If you look at animals, okay, animals do not have a soul or spirit. And therefore, they do not have an afterlife. I think that's a very important thing. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there 
that when pets die, they go to pet heaven, and you'll see you'll you'll you will see your pet again in heaven, and all these um, fallacies. Now, this is an important point here because they do not have a solar spirit; they cannot enjoy the rights or any rights that you and I enjoy as human beings. Now, I think it's very important to make a distinction. The reason I'm not going to go outside right now and find an animal and burn it to death isn't because the animal has an inherent right. It's because it was created by God, and because I want to honor God, I'm choosing not to be cruel to this animal. And there's a huge difference. Huge difference. Let's talk about the fundamental issue of what is a right. And so just let's just take a practical example. Let's just take the right to a free speech. Okay. Let's say I go out in public and I want to talk about, let's say I just want to share the gospel. And someone comes up to me and says, you can't share the gospel. You, you need to stop talking. Or maybe it doesn't even have to be something like that. I could just be talking about something that I want to talk about. And the reality is, is that I have the right. This is what we say in America anyways. I have the right <laughs> to talk about what I want to talk about. So the whole issue of rights is based on the attempted overriding of someone's will. In other words, if someone's going to try to override my will or my choice, a right is there to kind of stop that in its tracks. Gun rights are a great example of this. You know, our government's trying to take away our right to bear arms. It's a whole, the whole issue is they're, they're trying to override our free choice to buy guns and all of those different things. Now, with animals, animals have an instinct, not an actual free will, okay? Animals feel pain, absolutely. But animals don't have the complex emotions that we do as humans. And they don't actually have a free will that's connected to a soul. And because of this, animals do not have rights. And this is why man has dominion over animals and not the other way around. Now, PETA and a lot of other organizations want to place animals or place creation at the same level as humans. And the scripture is clear that that man, and it's, it's and we see this all over the place, man is worshiping creation rather than the creator. And another reality here to grapple with Okay, so we let, let, let's let's kind of back up for a minute, and let's talk about God. Let's talk about say that God is good, and God is sovereign. All these different concepts, but what do you do with all of the animals that have been killed, burned, and sacrificed throughout history? with Old Testament sacrifices. Now, according to the animal rights activists, this is cruel. 
God's cruel. Why would he, you know, allow people to slaughter and kill all of these animals? But see, God sees it so much differently. Animals are here for us. They're here for food. They're here for clothing. Um, but it does not mean that they have rights. It does not mean that we have an excuse to be cruel to them. But it doesn't mean that we put them on the same level as humans because God made this clear. God made man and woman in his image. Now, if he wanted to have animals to have the same rights or wanted animals to be on the same level as humans, he would have made animals in his image, but he did not. God is not, made, not, God is not in the image of a, a bear or a lion or an eagle. Okay, now there <clears throat> he uses animals. There's in Revelation you read about all of the different faces and all the different beings and all of that. Absolutely, but it does not mean that animals have rights. And lastly, on this subject, I think the biggest issue here that I have this is what this was what makes me um, upset. This is what makes me indignant. And angry, if I'm honest, is that the bigger issue is that folks here in Sarasota are in an uproar about a raccoon when the true rights of human life have been and are continuing to be ignored by our society. The killing of innocent life, abortion, the pressuring of sex changes, trying to override someone's right, or in this case, a parent's right a parent's right and responsibility to care for their children is, is being stripped away. So lest you think, oh, Josh is just hates animals and all of that. I don't. I, but I think there's the issue here is that there's a huge hypocrisy and a huge double standard. And uh, it's just nauseating to me that we're going to, let's speak up for the, the rights of this raccoon. They're dead. The raccoon's gone. It, it, it's not in heaven. It's not in hell. It's nowhere. It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a spirit. It's over 60 million uh, babies that have been slaughtered. Their blood is still crying out for justice. And that's where the real rights are. Human life. All right, let's get to our second topic and our trifecta of topics, music. Such a broad and incredibly awesome subject. And today I want to talk about just some practical ways to grow as a musician. If you're a musician, this is for you. And there are still some really good life and growth lessons if you're not a musician. So I think this could apply to a musician or non-musician for sure. But uh, continuing to grow and continuing to excel is uh, really something that you have to be very intentional about. And I'm just going to start off this segment by saying this statement. Growth should be more intentional than reactional. What do I mean by that? Many times we figure out or we discover that we need to grow because we are reacting to a situation that we are in. For example, let's say 
someone asks you to play a keys for an event and you get thrown in there and all of a sudden you find out, oh no, I need to grow in this area. I had no idea. And you're reacting to, you know, the situation and all of a sudden your, your, your growth is suddenly a product of reacting. Uh, and I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. Sometimes we need that to suddenly see, hey, I'm stuck in a rut and I didn't even realize it. So sometimes those situations where, where we are reacting to something or we are reacting to a situation that causes growth, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's good. But I think a, a more long-term solution is for growth to be intentional, that it's an, it's a, it's an upward climb rather than you flatlining for a while and then all of a sudden hitting a situation and then all of a sudden, oh no, I've got to grow and you go up for a little bit and then you get comfortable and you go back down. Growth really should be an upward climb and where you're constantly growing and constantly learning. So for me personally, I mean, I've been playing music now for 30 years and I have hit so many, I've had those times where it's been reactional. I've had those times where it's been intentional and I've learned a lot over, over that time frame. Um, not only from my own experience, but also just being a teacher, just being a, a you know, mentor and coach and seeing just people in general, teaching hundreds of students and just seeing all kinds of different situations. And um, I just want to give you some practicals just to help equip you. And so let's start with the first one here. And this is kind of an obvious one, but man, it's, it's really uh, easy to overlook and it's easy to dismiss. And that's a teachable spirit. And here's a good way to tell if you have a teachable spirit. Ask someone who's better than you. And again, this isn't just for musicians. I would say even whatever area of your life, if you're looking to grow, ask someone who's better than you. Say, hey, you know, tell me something. Critique me. And they they share something with you that might be pretty blunt. How do you respond? What's your gut reaction? What's your heart reaction? And that response will be a pretty good barometer as to whether or not you have a teachable spirit. And a lot of times what you say after will be a good barometer as well. And so it's it's really putting yourself in those situations where you're open. You're not closed. You're you're not you're not a closed book. You're not like, okay, I've arrived. I've I've hit a certain level of, you know, musical excellence and I've arrived and I don't need to learn anything new. It's the worst position you can be in. If you listen to last week's episode, I talked about the the uh, Russian lady, Ruth, 97 years old, 
just recorded a, an album. And she said at the age of 60, she said, I just finally felt like I was starting to get a hold of the piano. I mean, just talk about a growth mindset. So number one, having a teachable spirit is obviously a must. You can't grow if you think you don't need to grow. It's just really that simple. Number two, this is a huge one, especially with us musicians, <laughs> insecurities, all those different things that come along with it. Fear of failure. We're just afraid of stepping out. We're afraid of uh, trying something new, really af- being afraid of failure. And it's way easier to stay comfortable. It's way easier to um, just stay in that place of being comfortable than stepping out. Um, but here's the, here's the takeaway with this point. If you never fail, you'll never grow. All right, for the third point, let's talk about practice. And I, I kind of want to, first of all, start off with debunking a myth, at least the way that I perceive it to be. There's a myth or there's a certain perspective or a mindset that people have that, well, I they think, well, I need at least an hour or two hours a day. I don't have that kind of time. And the reality is, is that you don't need a ton of time every day to grow. Really, all you need is 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. The problem isn't with how much time you have. The problem is with what you're doing with that time. And I found this in a very practical way for myself. About five or six years ago, I started to get back into gigging more full-time and doing primarily instrumental piano, classical jazz, some more high-demand type music where it took more uh, more of my chops, more of my technique. And um, I didn't have the two to three hours that I would normally have uh, back when college or that type of thing. I only had 15, 20 minutes. And so what I had to do was literally map out every minute of my practice sessions each day. I had 15, 20 minutes. And so I had specific goals that I wanted to reach every day. And lo and behold, two, three months later, I was back playing and uh, back. My technique was back where I needed it to be. And I literally was practicing maybe 20 minutes, five days a week. That's it. Now, obviously having more time is going to be more helpful, but it all depends on what you do with the time. And, uh, even back in college, you know, I'd practice, when I say practice, quote unquote, practice, three to four hours a day, I would say 60% of that was probably focused practice and the other 40% was just me goofing off, trying stuff, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I sometimes I wonder, I go, if I had taken all 100% of that time and mapped things out like I did five or six, five or six years ago, how much further along I would be. So you want to be able to set goals. You actually want to know where you want to end up, what you need to accomplish, and be very systematic about it. 
linked with that is our fourth topic here. And this would be in particular with musicians. So I think one of the things that can be overlooked is a consistency in building technique. We, if you're not constantly reaching forward in technique in developing finger dexterity, um, finger strength, exercises, all those different things, you're not going to be able to get to those other genres that you want to. You won't be able to play those licks that you want to. Building your technique and continually going after that and reaching after that is really, really important. Then lastly, it kind of goes back to this idea of having a teachable spirit. It's this very simple concept, but very, very difficult to come to grips with. Assume you know nothing. Even though you might know some things, you have to have a beginner's mindset. You have to have the mindset of a beginner and go, you know what? I'm just going to assume I know nothing right now. And it's actually very freeing because it's almost like becoming a kid again. Kids are like sponges when it comes to information. And part of that is, is they don't know anything. Well, sometimes they think they do, but they don't know anything. And uh, it's this idea of, okay, I know nothing. I'm just going to kind of empty out here and... It's, I think part of that, it's easy to get to a place of being comfortable where you are. Another idiom would be you're a big fish in a small pond. You're like, I don't need to grow. And so it's that idea of just coming back to that place of assume you know nothing. And uh, I found that as I've implemented these concepts for myself, it's, it's just been huge, and um, I never want to stop growing. You never want to, because at that point, your stunted, stunted growth is just awful, especially when you're an artist. You know, if you're an artist, you want to be able to create. You want to be able to express yourself in whatever medium that is, and in this, in this case, it's music. And so you, you have to keep reaching. You have to keep moving forward. It takes discipline, it takes motivation, but it is definitely worth it. All right, for our third and final topic in our trifecta of topics, we're going to be doing a bird's eye view of progressive Christianity. Now, this is a huge subject, and my goal for today is just to give you just some basics on what they believe, uh, specifically in regards to Orthodox Christian beliefs. And just, again, just the, just the basics, the overview of, of where they're at, if you're not familiar with it. And so progressive Christianity really is essentially the emergent church repackaged. Now, the emergent church came to the forefront in the early 2000s. Um, Rob Bell and Brian McLaren were, were two big names. And essentially, these guys sought to really make the gospel and make Christianity more of a social issue and more about, um, you know, the hit Rob Bell's big book, Love Wins, really 
dumbed down and basically took away any kind of uh, need for repentance or the wrath of God on sin or the need for the cross or, or just all those different things and really reduced Christianity down to a set of morals that you just kind of, it's all about just loving people. I might be oversimplifying it a little bit, but that's essentially the gist of it. Now, there's a lady who does a podcast. Her name is Alyssa Childers. I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. Uh, and she has a, a website called The White Horse Inn. And I'm actually just going to read the majority of this article because it's very well done. And it will give you a really good understanding and a really good grasp of the basics of progressive Christianity. And if you're more interested in progressive Christianity and what it's about and more of the details and kind of the inner workings of it, uh, she has a podcast as well called the Alyssa Childers Podcast that you can find if you're interested in more of that. But again, this is on her website, The White Horse Inn. And uh, it's entitled, What Two Progressive Christians Believe? And uh, so I'll just start off with this. She says, progressive Christianity is a movement that is infiltrating and influencing the evangelical church. Some of the most high-profile Christian leaders are a part of it. This movement seeks to reinterpret the Bible reassess historic doctrines, and redefine core tenets of the faith. While claiming the title Christian and boasting a high view of the Bible, it is sweeping up many unsuspecting Christians into a false view of who God is and how he saves people. And this, again, ties into our worldview. We had a conversation about biblical worldview. This is right along with that. But it can be very difficult to, difficult to spot. It's not like progressive Christians typically introduce themselves like, Hi, I am your friendly neighborhood progressive Christian, and I'm here to preach a different gospel. And, and we know this is true. I mean, deception is deception because it masquerades as truth. And then you get down to the bottom of it and you go, No, there's, this is actually a very de- deceptive. Uh, The slow slide into progressive Christianity is so subtle, it is also imperceptible unless you know some basics. The following lists are not comprehensive, and they aren't a catch-all for every progressive Christian. However, progressive Christians will typically deny one or more of the doctrines in the first list and affirm one or more in the second. So before we go on, I think this is very important to mention. It's, you know, as we're talking to people on the street, or if you're a Christian or born, if you know Jesus, or if you're a born again Christian, and you're talking to someone, just because they say, yeah, I know Jesus, doesn't mean they know Jesus. I know this sounds like a very obvious statement, but in today's culture, that, that really, I hate to say it, it really doesn't mean anything. And so this is why knowing your Bible, having a biblical worldview, understanding the foundations of salvation, understanding the orthodox pillars of the faith are so important because the Bible actually declares, this is that the demons believe in God 
and they shudder. You know, how many times, if you've ever been out witnessing or evangelizing, you come across a person who says, yeah, I believe in God. That means absolutely nothing. And, um, and so this is especially true as we get into conversations with progressive Christians on the surface. It's going to be very similar, but uh, this is where we need discernment to know exactly what's going on. Let's take a look at some of the denials first. Let's talk about the atonement. So often progressive Christians will refer to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as horrific or unnecessary. The idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his son is perceived to be an indictment on God's character, turning him into a divine abuser. And their their big uh, phrase here is cosmic child abuse. And we know, if you're a Orthodox believer, we know that Jesus shedding his blood was absolutely necessary to obtain the legal right for us, to, in order for us to legally be sons and daughters before him. And so it has nothing to do with child abuse. It has nothing to do with the father being this angry me. It has everything to do with Jesus had to be that perfect sacrifice. He had to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins and to legally purchase us, to redeem us back. Uh, It's all about legality. And that's a whole podcast in and of itself. All right, the next one here is biblical authority or inspiration. This is extremely important. In the progressive church, the Bible is viewed more like an ancient spiritual travel journal than the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. The biblical writers are viewed as well-meaning ancient people who are doing their best to understand God in the times and places in which they lived, but they were not necessarily speaking for God. Scripture is also seen as contradictory, not internally coherent, and not authoritative for Christians. So at this point, I mean, you're probably getting the picture. This is big stuff. Now here's the deception, or here's the uh, here's where you really need discernment, and you need, you need to dig a little bit, because many leaders and pastors in this movement and followers as well will actually say that the Bible is inspired. But when you dig down into it, they don't mean inspired the way that we mean inspired. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, we're saying that the Bible was literally breathed out by the Holy Spirit. That's essentially what that means. Is that the Holy Spirit breathed out the very word of God through human authors, yes, but it is literally the Word of God. When they talk about the Bible being inspired, what they're referring to is people were almost like an artist is inspired to paint a painting. It's kind of that idea. Well, I was inspired to write this song, or I was inspired to paint this painting. And those are two extremely different definitions of inspired and uh, that's where that deception is. And that's why you have to really dig further because let's say you're talking to someone and they go, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. 
and I believe the Bible is inspired, and you go, great, let's have fellowship. And I'm not saying we need to be heresy hunters and be super critical or judgmental or punch people in the face, uh, but I, I, but this is where we need discernment, and we need to know what the Word of God says and know the foundations. All right, the next denial is that of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is roundly rejected in progressive Christianity with the idea of original blessing put in its place. So basically the doctrine of original sin is essentially the idea that man is born as a sinner. We're born into sin because of Adam. Progressive Christians don't typically deny that sin exists or that it is a bad thing. But they often deny the idea that we have some sort of a sin nature that was passed down to us from Adam and Eve. Instead, progressive Christians often teach that sin isn't what separates us from God, but our own self-imposed shame. In In the progressive view, it's often taught that we simply need to realize that we were never separated in the first place, that we are beloved and accepted by God just as we are. Okay, so again, you might be talking to someone and they go, yeah, I agree, sin's bad. And you might go, oh, okay, good, they believe in sin. No, 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 no. Typically, a progressive Christian will not agree that we're born into sin. They'll basically say, well, man's basically good, and it's just our shame that separates us from God. We just need to get back to where we were in the beginning. The problem with that is, is that the Bible is very clear that sin is what separates us from God, that we're enemies of God. Ephesians is clear on this. Romans is clear on this. In fact, in Romans it says, it says, uh, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, and, and so it, this idea that there's no original sin is something that they hold to. Next, the deity of Jesus. Uh, Certainly not all progressive Christians will deny Jesus' deity, but this doctrine tends to be downplayed. The concept of cosmic Christ is sometimes presented as our ultimate goal, that Jesus is just a model and exemplar of someone who was christened as both human and divine, and we can follow his example by finding finding the divine within ourselves, so very New Age-ish. So essentially... You know, they might not deny Jesus' deity, but they definitely downplay it to the extent where Jesus is just a, you know, we're just following this cool guy, you know. And it's, it's, we know that's not true. Jesus was fully man, but he's also fully God, fully divine, fully human. And uh, Jesus is much more than just a role model. The next thing is the physical resurrection of Jesus. It says, again, not every progressive denies the physical resurrection, but the idea that Jesus was bodily raised back to life is often deemed less important or significant than the meaning we can draw from the idea of resurrection. Paul says this. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. If Jesus wasn't resurrected... 
He's, uh, the Bible also says that he's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, because he was raised from the dead, we are going to be raised again uh, into our glorified bodies uh, at his return. And so the idea, the, the, the physical resurrection of Jesus is, an, is incredibly important, and it is huge, not just on Easter. <laughs> okay, next, the virgin birth. In the progressive church, the virgin birth and other miraculous events can be downplayed, ignored, or like the resurrection, viewed as less important than the life lessons we can learn. So it's, it's all about the lessons you learn, you know, to make you a better person. So the, the, the miraculous, the idea of, I mean, just we could spend, again, a whole episode on the virgin birth. These truths or these orthodox pillars of our faith are um, really kind of pushed to the wayside. The next is the Trinity. Huge. A denial of the deity of Jesus would naturally be a denial of the Trinity. So again, some progressives do deny the deity of Jesus, some don't. It kind of depends. But some progressive Christians take it further and and affirm the view of pantheism, which states that the universe is God. So, you know, it's kind of a, pantheism is like God's in everything. You know, you go outside and you look at the oak tree and you're like, oh God, I thank you that you're, you know, God's just in that oak tree. This is weird stuff. Uh, so the belief that God and the world are interrelated. God is in all and all is in God. This implies that God is somehow dependent upon creation, which casts serious uh, asper- aspersions on the nature of the Trinity. Sorry, that's a big word there. There's your, uh, <laughs> there's your dollar word for the day, aspersions. I, I assume that would be doubt. I got to look that up. So the Trinity, that's huge. Uh, that's that's a again uh, an, a hallmark of our faith. All right, the sinlessness of Jesus. You probably won't find many progressive Christians who outright outright declare that Jesus was a sinner. However, Jesus's humanity tends to be overemphasized, so there tends it tends to be very lopsided. For example, in Matthew 15, Jesus tells the Syrophoenician woman, "It's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs." This is viewed as Jesus having racial biases that were recognized and corrected during this exchange. And that has nothing to do with racial biases at all. Uh, I'm not going to get into that story, but that that has nothing to do with with, with that. Uh, my, my opinion is that Jesus was testing the woman uh, to see what, you know, eventually he says, look, your faith, look at this woman's faith. It has nothing to do with Jesus somehow being corrected on something. So those are the denials. Let's take a look at some of the affirmations. Right at the top of the list, surprise, surprise, LGBTQ relationships and marriage. Uh, this is one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is the shift on issues of sexuality and gender. There's almost universal acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriage a belief in the validity of transgenderism and a rejection of cis- cisgender norms. So, it's a mouthful there. Leadership, lay people, they they are totally fine with um, homosexual relationships. There's nothing wrong with it in their in their view. Universalism, 
the primary view, excuse me, of heaven and hell in the progressive church is universalism, which is the idea that no one will be punished in hell and everyone will eventually be saved and restored to right relationship with God. Some progressive Christians will say that Jesus is the only way, but believe he will save everyone. And uh, Jesus himself spoke on hell more than he spoke on heaven. And hell is very real. Hell was originally created for Satan. Um, and But it's a, it's a reality that you, we just can't get around. Next is the gospel of social justice and critical theory. In progressive Christianity, the gospel is not seen primarily as the good news of God saving sinners and reconciling them to himself. Instead, social justice issues become the heart of the gospel message, with with what one does being viewed as more important than what one believes. Often the secular framework of critical theory is embraced where the world is viewed through the lens of oppressed versus oppressor. So victim mentality and, you know, so if you're going on quote-unquote mission trips to Africa and you're giving people food and water and um, you're doing all of these humanitarian efforts, that that's really the heart of the gospel. And that's, I would say that the gospel includes those things because Jesus in the scripture says, if you give a cup of cold water to this person you're doing and you do it in my name, I'll remember that. And that means something. So I'm not saying that it has nothing to do with the gospel, but uh, the heart of the gospel is that we were lost. We were enemies of God. He came as a baby, as a man, suffered on our behalf, and died, rose again, and he's coming back. In a nutshell, <laughs> uh, it's the heart of the gospel is not social justice by any, by any stretch. The next thing that they affirm is pluralism. Uh, religious pluralism is the idea that all roads lead to God and no one religion holds ultimate truth when it comes to who God is and how, we re- how he reveals himself to the world. And so they're very inclusive uh, where you know, they'll say, hey, whatever faith you are, we're, we just welcome everyone. We're all on the same journey, learning together, trying to just get to you know this place of love, and whatever other terms that they use. Often progressive Christians will tout the mantra, everyone has a seat at the table, meaning all creeds and religions are true in their own way, and the people who embrace them are equally accepted by God. Now, this whole phrase, everyone has a seat at the table, it's kind of a buzzword now with with churches. You know, um, your family, you have a seat at the table. And I would say if you are a believer in Jesus you're born again, you've repented from your sins, and you, and the Holy Spirit resides within you, yes, you have a seat at the table. But if you're an enemy of Christ, and he's not Lord of your life, and you're living in willful sin, and you don't care, and then you do not have a seat at the table. It, it, you, you, I'm sorry. Christianity is not inclusive. It is not an inclusive religion where everyone is welcome. And the reason I say that is in John 14, 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In another part of scripture, Jesus says, I am the door into the sheepfold. 
And so this idea that, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or any other religion will somehow get you to God is absolutely false. And I think we have to be careful as as believers to just throw out a phrase that everyone has a seat at the table. It sounds good, but it actually isn't biblical. Uh, in, in, in its, it really isn't biblical. Let's put it that way. And then next, or lastly, pantheism. Uh, as stated above, many progressive Christians affirm pantheism. Another view that is promoted in the progressive church is perennialism. That's a big word. Here's what it means. The idea that although different religions look different on the outside, at their core, they share the same truth. I'll spell it out for you. P-E-R-E-N-N-I-A-L-I-S-M. Perennialism. I don't think I pronounced that right. It's all good. In other words, they share the same source and come from the same ultimate or divine reality. This divine reality can be discovered through mysticism and contemplative practices. So obviously many things wrong with that. (laughs) So they say at their core, they share the same truth. Well, we, I mean, absolutely not. If you look at Islam, for example, at the core of Islam is Allah. Well, Allah and Jesus are not compatible. They're not the same. Uh, you look at uh, New Age or Buddhism or any of those things, it's not the same source. There's one source, and it's God the Father. It's God. There's no other, you know, that's it. So pantheism or perennialism. Um, I got to figure out how to pronounce that. I'll keep you posted on that. (laughs) So, this was just a cursory view of progressive Christianity. If you are interested in learning more about it, I would encourage you to check out her podcast, Alyssa Childers. Uh, you can find her on Spotify and other platforms. And also she has a website called the white horse Inn, and there's a bunch of articles and different things that are really helpful. So progressive Christianity is something that we'll, we're going to dive into in more detail um, in future episodes but uh, it was really on my heart and my mind to to get into this, to at least start diving into this topic uh, in today's episode. Well, I appreciate you listening today uh, and being able to just discuss different topics and different thoughts. And I hope you were encouraged and edified and challenged and all those different things as you listen today. I look forward to next week's episode. And uh, again, if you haven't subscribed, I want to encourage you to do that. Spread the word. I hope you have a great week. See you next time.